You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hello, you've reached The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler, and I'm not here right now. I'm taking a little vacation for my birthday, which means it's also nearly Thanksgiving, which also means that it's nearly another birthday this shows. It has been five years now, five years since I started making The Constant. I can't say that I never expected the project to go on this long because the truth is that I never really stopped to consider what would happen to it at all. I just started making it and then I kept making it. I'm making it now and I'll be making it in the future, which is all thanks to you. I don't have money for advertising. Uh, I don't have big corporate or celebrity backing. All I've got is you listening to, recommending and supporting me, which is truly spectacular. At the beginning of this year, I decided I wanted to spend five episodes, that's two and a half months, talking about people who tried and failed to fly. Then I jumped right into spending three hours talking about the belief in a universal language. I did a whole bunch of content on quack medicine, on creationist dinosaur hunters, on altruism, on possessed nuns. I took a hard turn and spent an hour talking about Chicago's gun problem. I looked into animal trials and their similarities to modern transphobia. And I returned with a two and a half hour brick of an episode trying to correct a mistake you've already listened to me make for six hours previously with the fool killer. What all of those things have in common with one another isn't really that they're about getting things wrong, although that is nominally true. What they really share is that I wanted to learn about them and I wanted to talk about them. And because you were out there listening, I knew I could do that. No big media company would have ever approved that kind of whiplash-inducing year. No sponsors would have ever been like, Hey, we hear you're uh, talking about lifeboats and seasickness for the length of a major motion picture, and we want in. I can do this show only because I trust you to trust me to do it. I can make these big leaps of faith because I know you're behind me. And not just that, you're often behind me enthusiastically. When I read about altruism, a whole cadre of evolutionary biologists came out of the woodwork to say they were listening and appreciated how I handled it. And that, that made my month. When I put out the potentially final Fool Killer episode, 
dozens of you started doing research into the still-hanging questions. And that is so far beyond amazing, I don't even know what to do with it. I am so incredibly lucky to have you listening right now. None of this would be possible without the superstar folks who show their support by donating to the show. As you certainly should know by now, most of the Constant's expenses and costs are paid by our patrons. This year, I made a change to that model. People who sign up to support the show at $2 an episode now get ad-free and early access to new episodes, which a lot of you seem to feel is a pretty good deal. And I'm hoping that this episode, the one you're listening to now, will help push more of you over into joining them. If you're one of the pushed, head on over to patreon.com slash the constant now and you can sign up. Not only will you get new episodes early and ad-free, but every month on that same feed, I produce a secret episode just for patrons. And as my thanks to all of you, I am opening up the vault again this year and letting you get a peek inside. I've got a couple of old secret feed stories for you this Thanksgiving week. They're both a sign of my gratitude and also an enticement. I'm coming to you a couple of days before every other organization in the world does, asking you to support the making of this show. This year, I've been able to focus on making the constant full-time for the first time, and that is almost entirely thanks to patrons. That's how I pay the bills, and that is how I grow the show. Unlike probably most of the stuff out there that you love, this podcast is still a tiny little thing kept alive by a small group of people. And you can join them today. I hope you'll consider it. Can you tell how much I hate doing this pitching? <laughs> that is how necessary it is. Anyway, on to the stories. And since it is almost Thanksgiving, and I am giving thanks to you for listening and supporting, I thought I'd start out with a live performance recorded about a year ago at Chicago's Paper Machete. If you've been listening for a while, you probably recognize the paper machete. It's pretty much the only live performance I do these days because it is my favorite show in the country, bar none. Every week, host Christopher Pyatt brings in an assortment of writers, comedians, actors, musicians, journalists, and even podcasters to the Green Mill, one of the oldest and finest bars in the city, one of Al Capone's old haunts, to perform on current and less current events. I was at the Machete two weekends ago talking about Elon Musk, and the audio from that is currently available to patrons on the secret feed. But a year ago, I was there to talk about, what else? Thanksgiving. Take a listen. Mark Chrysler! We're going to test out every element of that introduction now. Let's see how it works. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody! appropriate level of hesitation to it. Yeah. Uh, I understand. I understand. When I was a kid, Thanksgiving was my favorite holiday uh, because it falls around my birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But today, with yet another birthday hurtling me ever further towards decrepitude and a greater knowledge of the baggage of American history, it's hard to even say happy Thanksgiving, let alone to mean it, right? Well, buy in with me folks. Jesus Christ. Great. I've got some good news for you because I have found a slim little path through the historical darkness that we can all travel together to find a new way to appreciate Thanksgiving. You want to come along? Have you learned yet? All right, good. Let's begin in the shadow of Mount Doom 
and then we will try to schlep our way back to the Shire from there. Our Mordor is also known as Plymouth Plantation. So the story goes, in the fall of 1621, Plymouth is where those fun-loving and fun-to-love pilgrims set the stage for the holiday to come. These pilgrims were not the Puritans that Hawthorne and Miller would go on to write those hilarious body comedies about. The pilgrims at Plymouth made even the Puritans look pleasant. They'd been kicked out of England just because they tried to secede from England, and in 1607, relocated to Leiden, Holland. They didn't speak the language, and they didn't understand how to live in a city, so the pilgrims spent their time in Leiden doing what they enjoyed most, suffering. But over the years, their children began to learn to speak Dutch and started befriending the people of Leiden. That, the pilgrims thought, was too much. So they set sail for America. They had the chance to land at Cape Cod, but this is serious. They were afraid that they might continue to be Dutchified if they did. So instead they landed at Plymouth where they promptly began to starve to death. Then in the fall of 1621, with the help of a Patuxent man named Tecumseh, who they called Squanto, the pilgrims managed to put together a harvest and held a festival day for that harvest. The neighboring Wampanoag Indians heard gunfire from the pilgrim celebration and thought, fuck. What the fuck are these assholes up to now? When they arrived at Plymouth to investigate, the pilgrims welcomed them to the feast, and the Wampanoag brought some food of their own and joined the pilgrims' party. Of course, the uneasiness begins here. Because while the pilgrims and the Wampanoag actually managed to mostly get along for a while, eventually relations fell apart kind of hard. In the late 1620s, a different group of Europeans had landed near Plymouth, where they established kind of the opposite of Plymouth, a sort of 17th century hippie commune full of drunken, debaucherous, free-loving pagan celebrations. Because the pilgrims had escaped religious oppression, they held a deep feeling that they should be able to religiously oppress everyone else. And so eventually, they burned Marymount Colony to the ground and stranded its leader, Thomas Morton, on a deserted island. But not before Morton managed to actually befriend the Wampanoag and sell them a whole bunch of guns. In the 1670s, the pilgrims were still stewing about those guns and were itchy to oppress somebody's religious freedoms now that the utopian Mordenites were gone. So in 1675, King Philip's war kicked off, which saw the Wampanoags banding together with the Narragansetts to fight off the New Englanders. Both the Wampanoag and the Narragansett tribes were decimated, and the New England colonists banded together for the first time, establishing a unified white European Christian identity that would eventually go on to do all that neat stuff we feel super proud of today. But here's the thing. The first Thanksgiving between the Plymouth Pilgrims and the Wampanoag wasn't. In the surviving recollections, nobody called that dinner a feast of Thanksgiving. It was merely a harvest feast. See, the idea of a Thanksgiving feast had nothing to do with Plymouth or the Pilgrims or the Native Americans. It was just something that Europeans did sometimes to celebrate those moments where they were temporarily not starving. (laughs) The Plymouth Pilgrims did go on to hold actual Thanksgiving days in years later without the Wampanoag. When the Berkeley Hundred landed in Virginia on December 4, 1619, that's two years before the Plymouth Feast, they immediately organized a celebration of Thanksgiving to God for delivering them across the ocean. The Virginia colonists at Jamestown had definitely been celebrating Thanksgiving since 1610, maybe even a few years before that. 
1564, a group of French Huguenots landed near present-day Jacksonville, Florida, and founded Fort Caroline. Soon after, the leader of the band called for a feast of Thanksgiving, which was celebrated on June 30th. In September of the next year, a group of Spanish settlers landed in what came to be called St. Augustine in Florida. The second their feet touched land, they too broke into a feast of Thanksgiving. The first national celebration of Thanksgiving was ordered by George Washington in 1789 to mark the defeat of the British in the Revolutionary War. Washington's proclamation has nothing to do with or say about the Plymouth Feast. Then how and when did Thanksgiving become intermingled with the image of pilgrims and Indians that those of us older than 20 but younger than 80 were taught? <laughs> the answer is complicated. For the first 200 odd years of US history, there was a lot of back and forth between Virginia, Massachusetts, and Florida over which of them had really held the first Thanksgiving. The Pilgrim version won out for mostly three reasons. First of all, the story of Plymouth plays into the hallucinogenic vision of America that white people in particular have always loved to Hunter S. Thompson onto. So it's perfect American myth-making of the faultless, blinded city of the hill variety. So we gave the Native Americans some of our dinner and that's why we celebrate today, Billy. And then what happened? Get your fucking green beans and shut up, Billy! The second factor in making Thanksgiving the modern thing we feel icky about today is John F. Kennedy. How's that for out of left field? He put, he put his Boston hoof print down with a presidential proclamation that more or less made Massachusetts the officially sanctioned origin of the holiday, just two weeks before he was assassinated. That's right, marking Thanksgiving as a celebration about the pilgrims was one of the last things to come out of JFK's mouth. No? That's where I lose you? Okay. Well, I'll know for next time. We're doing this at eight, right? Um, the final factor in recasting the general idea of a national Thanksgiving into a reminder of one stupid dinner held by a bunch of theocratic fuckwads who spent two centuries proving that they couldn't get along with literally anyone else in the world is the same factor that I believe can rescue our pride in the holiday. The first real push to attach Thanksgiving to the pilgrims was also the first real push to make it a national holiday. That movement was led, does anyone know? Well, that's not fair. Christopher got it. Sarah Joseph Hale, author of Mary Had a Little Lamb, and began sometime between the late 1830s and 1846. I heard the runner-up answer, and we'll get there in a second. With her dogged persistence, Thanksgiving became the third national American holiday after Washington's birthday and the 4th of July. But for the president who signed that official holiday proclamation in 1863, Thanksgiving still had nothing to do with Plymouth and plenty to do with something that we should all be able to appreciate. Sticking it to the Confederacy. Yes, thank you. We bury those people in Lincoln Park and we do not give them graves here, okay? Uh, Lincoln's Thanksgiving Day proclamation says a lot about the shared suffering of all Americans and the need for we, the people, to heal and come together in unity again. But Lincoln also cast his lo looming stovepiped side eye at the slaving traders when he wrote in that proclamation, I recommend to them 
lot of this emphasis is mine. I recommend to them that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to God for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also, with humble penitence for our national perverseness and disobedience, commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged. So, you see, from its beginning as an official holiday, Thanksgiving was about not only giving thanks for all the blessings this nation has been gifted, earned, or stolen mostly, but also about the need for the American people to look inward on our national sins and shortcomings. When we say happy Thanksgiving, we aren't just giving thanks, but begging forgiveness. And as a final bonus, we're telling Robert E. Lee to go fuck himself. So, from the bottom of my heart, I say to you all, happy Thanksgiving. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for my friend Mark Chrysler. How great was that? He's a true people's professor. Please download the constant A History of Getting Things Wrong. It's an amazing podcast. On to our next Secret Feed episode, which requires just a tiny bit of setup. Last year, I did a two-part series on death rays called Death Rays, which included the story of the Kugo, a microwave-powered death ray developed by the Japanese during World War II. In researching that story, I ran across a claim that testing the Kugo had been difficult because of a quote-unquote Japanese monkey shortage, which is the kind of phrase that wakes me up in the morning. So I went looking for an explanation for this Japanese monkey shortage, which was how The Secret Feed got this episode entitled The Hundredth Monkey. This is The Constant Secret Feed. I'm Mark Chrysler, and you know what we're here for. The World War II era Japanese monkey shortage. About which I can tell you nothing, or virtually nothing. While I found multiple references to said monkey shortage while researching Japan's death ray, I can't for the life of me determine its cause or scope or any other mention of it outside of the Kugo. My guess is that either all of these sources share an unknown Q text that was to some degree or another wrong. Like maybe the scientists responsible for the Kugo did have trouble getting a monkey for research, but it was entirely their own issue or someone in the early recording of the Kugo invented the monkey shortage wholesale. The other possibility, which my gut says is more likely, is that there was a monkey shortage in the Japanese R&D sector during World War II, but that it had no particular story to it. That there was just a lot of probably very disturbing work being done that stressed the supply of available research monkeys. I don't know, but that's my best guess. Not much of a story, I realize, but in attempting to track down the cause of the supposed Japanese monkey shortage, I found a different story. A story that I now know has been written about a pretty good deal, but I had never heard it before, and I'm excited to tell it to you. It is the story, as the title of this episode suggests, of the hundredth monkey. So, first of all, the claim. After World War II and its attendant monkey shortage, maybe, there was a sort of golden age of Japanese primatology, led in particular by Kinji Imanishi, who founded Kyoto University's Primate Research Institute. The primary subject of Japanese primatology was, naturally, the Japanese macaque, which you're more likely to know as the snow monkey. There was a lot of post-war research and study done around the Japanese macaques, but the story we're here for centers on the small island of Kojima. 
I cannot express how difficult I'm finding it to describe the location of Kojima, so let's just say it's off the coast of Kyushu, the most southwestern large island of Japan. Kojima is small and steep and mostly uninhabited, so the macaque population of Kojima was more or less untouched by human intervention. The perfect place for the budding primatologists of Kyoto's Primate Research Institute. Lots of cool stuff was learned about Japanese macaques from PRI's work on Kojima, but the most important and famous thing was what Satsumito saw one young female monkey do in 1953. Starting in 1952, the researchers had been making what were essentially supply drops for the macaques. They would put sweet potatoes and wheat on the beaches for the macaques to come take and eat. There were a few thoughts behind this provisioning. One was that it kept the monkeys from stealing from local farmers, which in turn kept the farmers from killing the monkeys. It also provided a good way to locate and view the macaques, which could be depended upon to come down to the beach to get the free food. But there were a number of unexpected side effects from the feeding program. Either because of the novelty of this food source or because their basic needs were now mostly taken care of, the Kojima macaques started displaying new and surprising behaviors. Satsumito noticed that one young female monkey, whom she called Emo, had figured out that if she took a sweet potato to a stream or to the ocean and dipped it in, she could wash the sand off of it. Very interesting development. But more interesting was that after Emo began washing her sweet potatoes, her friends, siblings, and mother learned to do the same thing from her. Primatologists knew that there were cultural food customs passed down generationally among the macaques, but this was the first time they'd ever seen a new, innovative idea spread through a community. There were a lot of tremendously important and fascinating observations to be taken from this. For instance, Emo continued to innovate on her initial idea, washing the wheat, too. But what we're here for is what the researchers learned about the transmission of a new idea. It took years for the behavior to spread, and that spread was largely governed by two factors. How close the learning monkey was to a washing monkey, and how old it was. So, Emo's siblings picked up on potato washing very quickly, and so did those nearest to her in her peer group. Emo's parents also learned to wash their potatoes, but other older monkeys who weren't related to a younger potato-washing monkey, they didn't pick it up, and neither did Emo's grandparents. For whatever reason, the older a monkey was, the less likely it was to learn. And let's draw a line in the sandy sweet potato right here, because everything so far is widely accepted and very well documented, and everything after this point is... Uh, well, less so, but this is the part of the story we're here for. Our unreliable narrator for this section is Lyle Watson, who we'll come back to in a minute. According to Watson, in the fall of 1958, something even more astounding happened. By that time, all of the macaques around Emo's age and younger were washing their potatoes, as were all of the parents of the younger potato washers. But the monkeys who were older than that or who didn't have children to teach them, were still stuck eating sandy sweet potatoes. And then, well, oh, let me just quote Watson here. In the autumn of that year, an unspecified number of monkeys on Kojima were washing sweet potatoes in the sea. Let us say, for argument's sake, that the number was 99, and that at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday morning, one further convert was added to the fold in the usual way. But the addition of the hundredth monkey apparently carried the number across some sort of threshold. 
pushing it through a kind of critical mass, because by that evening, almost everyone was doing it. Not only that, but the habit seems to have jumped natural barriers and to have appeared spontaneously, like glycerin crystals in sealed laboratory jars, in colonies on other islands, and on the mainland in a troop at Takiskiyama. You catch that? According to Watson, for five years, the Kojima macaques had gone about learning to wash their potatoes the old-fashioned way by watching others. But then, one day, one hour, one instant, a new macaque caught on and tipped the scales. The moment that hundredth monkey washed its potato, all the remaining monkeys began to wash theirs too. Not just the old childless monkeys on Kojima, who had previously either been uninterested or unable to learn, but even populations of macaques on other islands. And in the Takaskiyama Monkey Park in Oita, more than a hundred miles from Kojima. How can this be, you should be asking, unless you've already jumped straight to this couldn't be, which I fully understand and the rest of us will catch up with you shortly. So, how could this be? If you're Lyle Watson or Lawrence Blair, in whose book Rhythms of Vision, The Changing Pattern of Belief, Watson first printed this story, the answer is that there is some sort of collective consciousness in all the macaque populations. If you're a New Ager or a Theosophist or other foo-foo flinger, then you might see the hundredth monkey effect as evidence for morphic fields, collective memory, telepathy, precognition, or whatever other junk you can come up with. If you're a little less brazen in your disregard for the established laws of physics, you could see the hundredth monkey as an example of simultaneous invention, a hypothesis that says inventions and discoveries tend to be made, well, it's right there, isn't it? Simultaneously. On one level, the simultaneous invention hypothesis or multiple discovery hypothesis is good and deserving of attention. Boosters of it are rightly critical of the great man of history narratives that put human advancement at the feet of certain extraordinary individuals. Reasonable versions of the multiple discovery hypothesis note that, especially after information began to flow somewhat freely and quickly, the discovery of new bits of science mostly tend to follow a sort of linear sequence, building upon one another intuitively. My favorite example of this comes from astrophysicist Alan Lightman, who infamously had completed a paper on globular clusters back in 1978, and only when working on the references for it did he discover that Roland Svensson had written ostensibly the same exact paper a few months before him. Lightman has said that this moment made him realize that science didn't need him, that physics was just waiting there for anyone and everyone to look at it, and so he started writing fiction instead, including the absolutely brilliant Einstein's Dreams, which is one of my hands-down favorite books. Naturally, a lot of science and technology builds on previous developments. Leibniz and Newton both discovered calculus around the same time, but you can't get differential calculus without analytical geometry, which had only been around for 20 years or so. In turn, analytical geometry had been discovered by both Descartes and Fermat. Why had they come up with that at nearly the same time? Well, for one, <laughs> Descartes lifted a bit from Fermat, but they were also both newly freed from the obsessive Western difference to fucking Aristotle, which was also pretty stinking integral. Add to that the new spirit of scientific cooperation, a reliable postal system, and greater access to printing, and we should expect there to be a lot of near-simultaneous discoveries. On the other hand, a lot of examples of simultaneous invention are just bullshit. Take one of the most famous ones, the crossbow. 
Several believers in what we could call the strong theory of simultaneous invention hold that the crossbow was invented simultaneously in China, Southeast Asia, Greece, Northern Africa, and the Baltics. Which does seem pretty astounding, and like the kind of trivia you might want to drop during a dinner party, but don't do it, because it's simply not true. For one, it's not as if the historical records of any one of those places, let alone all of them, are thorough enough that we can say precisely when the crossbow was invented anywhere. As best as I can tell, the earliest evidence of crossbows comes from China and date to the mid-6th century BC. In contrast, the writings of Heron of Alexandria seem to indicate that the Greeks first built crossbows somewhere around 400 BC. In Western Europe, the crossbow doesn't seem to show up until around the turn of the first millennium, so that's a pretty freaking wide gap, huh? Northern Africa might have gotten them soon after that, but there's no direct evidence that they had them until the 1300s. No matter how you cut it, the only way you can call the invention of the crossbow simultaneous is if you expand the definition of simultaneous to include things that happen within 1500 years of one another. And, as you might expect, a similar kind of blurriness is at play with the potato-washing macaques of Kojima. The hundredth monkey effect is very much beloved by a great variety of pseudoscientists and spiritualists, which of course means that it's also been studied and debunked by a host of skeptics. There's so many ways to debunk this story that it's borderline embarrassing. In 1985, Ron Amundsen wrote an absolutely brutal takedown of the hundredth monkey effect in The Skeptical Inquirer. Maybe the biggest fist to the face? In 1958, when the hundredth monkey supposedly learned to wash its sweet potatoes and the rest followed, there were a grand total of 59 monkeys in the colony. But hey, Wilson himself says that he doesn't know the exact number and that he just chose 100 for convenience. So as sick of burn as that is, we're going to need more. And more we shall have. See, it turns out that if we go back to the top of Wilson's own account, he gives most of the game away because he says this in his introduction. One has to gather the rest of the story from personal anecdotes and bits of folklore among private researchers, because most of them are still not quite sure what happened, and those who do suspect the truth are reluctant to publish it for fear of ridicule. So, I am forced to improvise the details, but as near as I can tell, this is what seems to have happened. Wilson, by his own admission, has no on-record sources and has created the details, whatever they are, out of whole cloth. Nobody who was actually involved in the Kojima study has anything to say about it. And actually, in several ways, the known documented events contradict his telling. He doesn't say anything about the other behaviors the troop had picked up from Imo and her friends, like the grain washing. Actually, the documented account makes a lot of sense of why the percentage of potato washers seemed to increase by a lot during the non-instantaneous period of time in question. Imo and her friends became mature and started having babies of their own. Those babies learned to wash potatoes from their parents, the same way monkeys always learned feeding habits. And at the same time, the older, non-washing monkeys began to die. So, of course there was a tipping point in potato washing. It just so happened to be the natural tipping point of generational replacement. We could go on like this almost forever. The record keeping for the troop, let alone the neighboring troops, let alone the ones in the monkey park, were anything but continuous. So that even if they had indicated this simultaneous learning, that simultaneous time period would be at least a year. 
But even if everything worked in Wilson's favor, if there had been more than 100 monkeys, and they did all pick up the washing habit in a short span of time, and there hadn't been maturation and death and child-rearing among the population, and Wilson actually had sources that supported him, there'd still be a problem with this story. See, Wilson pointed out that the troops on the various islands were totally isolated from one another. Macaques can't swim, and they have no contact. There was, according to Wilson, nothing linking troops together before they supposedly all started washing sweet potatoes. But that isn't so. There had to be at least one thing connecting all the troops that the researchers were following, necessarily. They were all being researched. They were all in contact with the same people. And those people could be acting as the bridge for the sweet potato washing, maybe consciously, maybe otherwise. There was contamination to be considered in the observations. Even if they did show the hundredth monkey effect, which they did not, the more reasonable explanation for it would be that the researchers skewed the data. And if that sounds a little far-fetched, well, two things. First of all, is it more far-fetched than a universal monkey unconscious? Yeah, that's what I thought. But sure, unless the monkeys saw the researchers washing their own potatoes, then why would they alter the way that they had been handling sweet potatoes, which they had been doing since... Oh, right. That is the big catch. Sweet potatoes aren't native to Kojima or the surrounding islands. The first time any of the macaques had ever seen one was when they were dropped onto the beaches by the researchers. So... Even if we give every false predicate generously over to Wilson, and even if we say the researchers didn't give them the idea of washing, they still gave them the potatoes to wash. So, at best, washing sweet potatoes is just what monkeys do, provided you give them the sweet potatoes first. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes I'm faced with a problem that I just don't know how to handle. You know what I mean, where you feel like you're totally without a map? Unfortunately, life doesn't come with a user manual. So when it's not working for you, it's normal to feel stuck. Navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel unsure, whether it's a career change, a new relationship, or becoming a parent. Therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills which makes therapy the closest thing to a guided tour of the complex engine called you. That can mean learning coping skills, self-empowerment, dealing with trauma, or any number of other critical things you might need. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash The Constant. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash The Constant. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope. Never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's Triviality. Okay, one last Secret Feed story, just because you're so darn good looking. This one is as full of obscure German history as it is full of poop jokes. And if you appreciate both of those things equally, you really should join the Patreon. It is called Holy Shit. This is the Constant Secret Feed. I'm that one guy, and you're a lovely supporter who makes this show possible. Or else a pirate, in which case, avast! This is this month's bonus episode, which you can see for yourself is entitled Holy Shit. Sound fun? Well, let's find out. Oh, it's only just now occurring to me that this title might be a bit of a bait and switch to some. Because the question of whether such a thing as holy shit really existed was a real humdinger for early Christians. What I mean by holy shit in this usage is the shit of Christ given for you. Whether or not Jesus pooped was a hot, steamy matter of debate in the early church, and it's a debate that could be approached from many angles, though I recommend not coming at it from behind or below. The first round of argument dates back to the earliest days of Christianity, when various Gnostic and Martianist groups were kicking around ideas that would eventually and ferociously be excised from the Catechism. Among those ideas were several different versions of what's typically called Docetism, which is sort of an umbrella term for the belief that Jesus didn't actually have a human body. Instead, he might have been a sort of ghost, or else made out of a kind of divine quintessential matter that gave the appearance of flesh. Whatever, however, and whyever variant of Docetism a person followed, the bottom line was that the body of Christ was illusory, and therefore, so were his dookies. 
After the First Council of Nicaea in 325, Docetism in all its forms was deemed heresy, but that only moved the goalposts on the duty debate. Sure, everybody agreed that Jesus had a real body, which had really lived, and most importantly, suffered. But did that suffering include the kind that we share when we eat a cheesy gordita crunch? Maybe not. In Jewish scholarship, there was a midrash which claimed that while the Israelites were wandering with Moses through the desert, they did not poop. Not in the entire 40 years, because they were eating manna, the bread of the angels, which was perfect and didn't create any sort of bodily corruption. Since Jesus was himself divine, why shouldn't he be spared likewise from dumping? In the Middle Ages, the question of whether Christ not only multiplied loaves, but pinched them off as well, came down to which of our favorite antagonists they followed, Galen or fucking Aristotle? Galen thought that digestion was purely mechanical, and that therefore how much and what quality of poop eating produced came down not to who the eater was, but what was eaten. By that logic, Jesus did poop because he ate regular old food. But theoretically, when one took communion, eating of his body, that did not produce poop. On the other hand, there was Aristotle, who believed that digestion was more like chemistry. That's a pretty generous way to put it. Since everything was made up of the four elements and every living thing made up of the four humors, he figured the waste product was bile. But the most important thing to Aristotle, and this is true about almost every subject he ever considered, was heat. And it was the eater's internal heat which determined how much they were able to properly digest. A perfect eater should absorb their food entirely. And who could be a more perfect eater than the Son of God? No, damn it. I said that this episode wasn't going to be about whether Jesus shat. This episode is about some other people who definitely did. There are a large handful of main characters for this story, and I'm going to try to get through them quickly and clearly. The first is a guy we talked about a little in The Forbidden Experiment, the father of Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II and son of Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, Holy Roman Emperor Henry VI. Too many Holy Roman Emperors, I know, but worry not. At the time our story takes place, 1184, Frederick II was not yet born, and Henry VI was but the lowly king of Germany. And as the lowly king of Germany, he had a problem. Twelve years earlier, a different Henry, Henry the Lion, the Duke of Saxony, had declined to help Emperor Frederick Barbarossa invade Lombardy, and in anger, Frederick invaded Saxony and deposed and exiled Henry. That left the power structure in Germany greatly unbalanced, particularly around Thuringia, which was officially ruled by the landgrave Louis III, also known as Louis the Mild. Louis is our second main character, and arguably our most important. For someone who was officially named Mild, Louis was pretty friggin' spicy. At any given time, he had feuds going with several other German lords, including Henry of Schwartzburg whom Lewis suspected had stolen a rare copy of a German-language translation of Virgil's Aenid from Lewis while he was distractedly deflowering his new bride on their wedding night. In 1184, however, Lewis's primary beef was with another of our main characters, Conrad of Wittelsbach. If we haven't figured this out yet, politics in the Holy Roman Empire were a perpetual nightmare. The emperor was not only trying to keep a huge number of grouchy German nobles on his side, but he also had to manage his own church with all its attendant bishops, archbishops, and popes, or, as the Catholic Church called them, anti-popes. 
Because he promised to support Frederick's anti-pope Victor IV, Conrad got to be Archbishop of Mainz for a while. After Victor died, Conrad refused to support the next anti-pope, Paschal III, and fled the country. But after a few more anti-popes and a few more regular popes and a string of archbishops who likewise fell out with Frederick, died or were assassinated, I told you, perpetual nightmare, Conrad returned to Mainz and took up the archdiocese there in 1183, one year before our story. Conrad immediately began restoring Mainz. He rebuilt the fortifications for the city and renovated the cathedral, but he also began building a walled castle in Helgenburg, right next to the border of Thuringia. Louis saw this as a provocation, and his vision was probably correct. Soon enough, Conrad and Louis were at each other's throats, threatening war, and a whole host of lesser nobles, including the potential book thief Henry of Schwarzburg, started lining up their alliances ready for war. Emperor Frederick couldn't allow that, but he also didn't know whose side to take. Louis was his nephew, but Conrad had thrown him the biggest party in European history. It was a real Sophie's choice. As luck would have it, Frederick's son, our first main character, King Henry, was passing near Thuringia on his way to make war with Poland. A perpetual nightmare, I say. So the emperor asked him to hear out both sides and find a peace between Mainz and Thuringia. Henry called for a diet to be held in the rectory of St. Peter's Monastery, the oldest and grandest building in Thuringia's largest city, Erfurt, and everyone was invited. Not only would Conrad and Louis be there and their entire royal retinues, but so would a lot of the lesser nobles who were staking out positions in the fight, including, once again, Henry of Schwarzburg. But that wasn't all. A visit from the king was a rare opportunity, and doubly so a visit from King Henry, since he was in line to one day replace his dad. So anyone with a tactical bone in their body came to St. Peter's on July 26, 1184, hoping to be bathed in the radiance of the emperor-to-be. Instead, they were bathed in something else. Our last main character, or set of main characters, are the monks of St. Peter's Monastery in Erfurt. The monastery was big and old and grand enough for a cadre of quiet, sober monks. But it wasn't used to accommodating hundreds of loud, angry, grandstanding, hard-drinking German nobles. Particularly wanting was the floor of the rectory, which, just a short while into the proceedings, collapsed entirely. The monastery might have been old, but it had one ultra-modern innovation going for it. Most buildings of the era had nothing like a bathroom at all. When it came time to relieve yourself, you'd have to go outside. If you were pretty hoity-toity, you might have a garderobe, a small room that hung out over the rest of the building with a hole in the floor that you could poop straight through down onto whatever or whoever was standing below. But the monks, being a communal sort, had built into St. Peter's a latrine, a big wooden room covered in rudimentary toilet seats where all the devout could crap together. The latrine itself might have been somewhat luxurious, but the plumbing that powered it was not. All that monk poop just dropped into a large, carved-out cesspool below. Now, the trick to building a cesspool was to build it big and deep, because once it filled up, someone would have to climb down and clean it out, and for obvious reasons, you wanted to do that as infrequently as possible. But on the 
Flip side, the larger you dug the cesspool, the worse the job would be when it did have to be done. So, the monks of St. Peter's Monastery in Erfurt had come up with a compromise. They made their cesspool extremely deep and then just neglected to clean it at all. Do you even need to ask where the latrine was built? That's right, directly below the rectory floor. Under the weight of hundreds of German nobles and their retinues, the floor of the rectory was wrecked. It disintegrated in a heartbeat, taking the vast majority of the assembled down with it to the wooden latrine below, which also immediately collapsed, dumping everyone and everything into the already dump-brimming cesspool. King Henry and Archbishop Conrad were lucky. They'd been standing in a stone alcove at the time and barely managed to hang onto the archway until someone rescued them with a ladder. Most of the others didn't have it so easy. Probably most of the people cast down through the rectory survived the initial fall, aside from those who were struck by debris or broke hard through the latrine floor. As long as you avoided all the lumber, though, you were safe because the cesspool was filled with more than enough monk shit, decades of it, to break your fall and then drown you. At least 60 people, and possibly as many as 100, drowned in the cesspool that day. The Erfurt latrine disaster managed to take out more German lords than the Crusades, including the Burgraves of Kirchberg, Wartburg, and Meldingen, the Counts of Ziegenhain and Abenberg, and that book-thieving Count Henry of Schwarzburg. Although Louis did fall through the floor and the latrine and into the cesspool, he didn't die there. He was pulled out, miraculously safe and sound, and without serious infection. By the time he was back on solid ground, not that kind of solid ground, the regular kind, King Henry had left. He took one look at the literal mess beneath him and was like, I would rather be at war with Poland, and ghosted the whole stinking aftermath. Archbishop Conrad and Landgrave Lewis were left to pick up the pieces of poop and work out their affairs without royal help. The record doesn't indicate the final terms of their relationship, but the border between Mainz and Thuringia remained settled for the rest of their time as rulers and neither side made war with the other. It would seem as though, after July 26, 1184, Louis the Mild and Conrad of Wittelsbach put away their grievances with a newfound appreciation of what was really important in life. After all, they had seen some shit. I can't hear you booing. Podcasting is a one-way medium. Thanks for supporting the show. I'll talk to you again real soon. That's all she wrote, everybody. I want to once more thank you all for listening, for spreading the word, for rating and reviewing, and always, but even more so, a very special thanks to all the patrons who make the continued existence of The Constant possible. If you would like to join them to get full access to all the Secret Feed episodes, as well as ad-free and early access to new episodes, one more time, please go to patreon.com slash the constant and sign up. And if you have a chance, leave us a rating and review, tell a friend, do what you can to keep us in the black. Music for today's episode provided by Blue Dot Sessions, Epidemic Sound, and Lee Rosevere. I'll meet you back here in two weeks for a second volume of Little Thing Stories. Until then, from a secret location that is for once not Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant. <laughs>